as they go out, um, we're going to get ready to hear about the value of generosity. Okay, I'm going to pray and then share what God's put on my heart. Heavenly Father, as we spend some time in your word, I ask that you would change our hearts, Lord. Things begin in our hearts, and even what we say is an overflow of what's going on in our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work deeply within us today. In Jesus' name, amen. As a church, I would believe any local church should be a generous people. But generosity is something that I don't think any, maybe I shouldn't say I don't think any, I don't think many people have uh, degrees in or expert knowledge of. I think we're all kind of inadequately growing in our understanding of generosity. And my whole life I've desired to be generous, but I don't really believe that I've been a fraction as generous as I should have been. I think many of you would feel the same. You have a desire to be generous, but you know generosity only counts in action, not in intention. So we often view ourselves as generous because of the number of times we've had good thoughts. But if we actually had to measure the actual actions that we've taken that were generous, it would probably be a lot less. And obviously as our faith grows, I believe that the gap between those two should narrow. Our feelings and our intentions should be acted upon more often. And so if by the end of my message I've done nothing but encourage you to have a little bit more faith, to be a little bit more reckless, a little bit more extravagant, a little bit more lavish towards others, then I'm happy, as long as we're just going one step towards that. So generosity, when we talk about it, we could talk about uh, giving, but it's not simple giving because your giving in church offerings and tithes and all that stuff, that might have nothing to do with generosity. That could just be obedience. That could just be saying, God has said to us, we must bring our offerings and we bring them. That's what, what, what we have, in a sense, all of it belongs to Him and He's laid claim to some of it. So in the Old Testament, He said to Israel, you will give me a tenth. It's not a negotiable thing in the Old Testament law. The giving was prescribed. I'm not talking about that today. That, don't think, don't conflate those two ideas that the tithes and offerings and giving that we do as worship is generosity. It's just obedience. And uh, generosity is a very, very different thing. I think it's a magnificent depiction of the heart of God. Yes. That's what I think generosity is, a magnificent depiction of the heart of God. God made more than one color. Now, I have red-green color blindness, so I look forward to heaven when I'm healed and I can see what you see. But actually, I think we're all going to see even more. And, you know, in the old days, our computers had amber or green screen. I don't know who's old enough to remember amber and green screen computer monitors. It was like, either your computer is this color, it's one of those orange glowing ones, or it's one of those green glowing ones. But actually... The picture on your computer only begins to look real when you've got 16 million colors or more. So there's actually not just a couple of colors, there are millions of shades and tones and nature around us, God has built into it this massive, massive capacity for displaying a dynamic range of glory, of beauty, of something. and he why? 
why did he do that? Why did he, why did he share with us, create us into a world where we could bask at the sunset that's different every day and different tones, different saturation, different... Why? He made different colors for different seasons. He made the stars. He made those beautiful sunsets. He made the ocean and its waves. And you stand there and you look and it's just always changing, always beautiful. And he just did that for our eyes to enjoy. Just out of his goodness, he's made it glorious. I don't know what it's like for dogs. Apparently they might only see him in black and white or something. It's not really true. But... And then when you think about music, God made music. Not just a buzzer, not just a few frequencies. In fact, there's this massive range of sounds you can enjoy, from the roll of thunder, to the crashing of waves, to the singing of a bird, to a symphony orchestra, just for our ears to enjoy. Because if you think about necessity, it's, 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 not, it's not necessary. We could communicate with Morse code. It would be tedious, but you could communicate just using dots and dashes or beeps. You could have no opportunity to enjoy music the way we just did in this first song. There's, there's no reason for it in terms of survival. Other creatures survive with some very limited capacity for making sounds. Actually, just for our eyes, God made millions of colors, and just for our ears, we have symphony orchestras. And that's His common grace. That's God's common grace. What we mean by this is, it's God just being nice to creation. It doesn't even depend on you being one of His children. You don't even have to know God for you to be able to enjoy beauty and music and all these things. God's just abundantly given creation blessing. It's poured out for no good reason other than that God is just generous. He's just lavish. He just gives it without holding back. And that's His common grace, which means it's on all flesh, not just on the elect or on the saved or on His children or on the Jews. Or It's not special or specific grace. It's just handed out for everyone. Even those who abuse it or ignore it or don't even care about it, He says, here, just enjoy it. And yet, in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, we read, However it is written, as it is written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. So the things I've just been describing, you can see and you can hear, and they're magnificent. And yet there's yet another level of God's goodness that He's prepared for those who love Him. God revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. So there's something the writer Paul is writing about that is way beyond what you can see and what you can hear. And he's speaking about God's salvation, God's mercy and grace displayed in giving us eternal life. 
And this is what's amazed me about um, some of those moments where you, you're kind of celebrating something and the Holy Spirit comes and says, you don't even get it yet. Like, I was, I was looking at some um, Ari Ari banknotes and counting the offering one day and I'm saying, thank you, Lord, for all your years of provision for us. Thank you, Lord, for each and every person who gave even a, a hundred Ari Ari note. And I'm praying, I often intercede in those times when I'm looking at the offering and I treat it as a holy thing. And God said, you know, you don't have to rejoice. I mean, it's good to rejoice, but he says, that scripture that the disciples were given when Jesus said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I felt God speak that verse to me right there and then and said, you're rejoicing over this, but this is not even the big thing. The thing you should be rejoicing over is that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, which means what is given to us in the gospel, what is given to us in God's special grace, far outweighs anything else in this world. The best sunset, the most incredible music, the, all the material things you could be blessed with, piles of money, it doesn't matter. It's trivial compared to the magnificence of the gift that God has given us in His Son. In other words, Jesus is worth more than anything by far. And we should be rejoicing in Him and rejoicing in, our, in, in the gift that God has given to us in Jesus. He is so generous that in His common grace, he gave us all the beauty of creation and revealed something magnificent. And yet in His special grace, He gave us Himself, the absolutely best. And so this to me is like, wow, how do we grow in generosity? We have to grow in our revelation of God's goodness and our security in Him. Not only has He blessed us with material things, but He's blessed us with His very self, His heart and His life. And so, as I look at the idea of generosity, I have to look at a God who is so lavish, so extreme, that He wouldn't withhold even Himself. And I think this is how I want to live generosity in my life. It's not about a quantifiable gift, but it's giving from the heart. It's saying, I, I'm not even withholding myself. If I do something good to someone, it's not just a technical good work because it's righteous, but it's a loving action from a heart that says, I want to give myself. Now I'm beginning to see the generosity that God lives in, that is in God. So I would put it to you that our lives should become a conduit of grace, conduit, a channel, path something that carries something. Our lives should be carriers of grace, but not just our own means, not just according to our own ability, but a conduit of His limitless grace. So if you're going to understand generosity, it should be driven by a revelation that God is infinite and that He doesn't withhold anything. And then His grace can flow through our lives. Many times we begin on the other side of the spectrum with a kind of a poverty-mindedness. And poverty-mindedness is often part of the rational justification for withholding or being stingy. It's not about poverty. I use the word poverty when I say poverty-mindedness. 
But poverty-mindedness is more like a, a stronghold in your mind, and it's based on fear, and it holds you in captivity, it keeps you enslaved to a fear. Poverty-mindedness affects rich people as much as it affects poor people. In fact, maybe more. In many cases, more. It's not about poverty. It's an unwillingness to spend or give that's based on a fear of lack. So, no matter how rich you are, you can be afraid that you aren't secure yet, that you don't have enough to guarantee your future. And so you'll find rich people who are hoarding because they're living in fear, because they, their hope and their security depends on having enough, and how do you ever know when you have enough? And of course, all you need to do is just read up about medical bills in the United States, and then you would really be afraid. I mean, you go and have your appendix out here, it costs you like 200,000 hurry hurry or something, That's we got it cheap. And uh, you go there, it will cost you years of year of your savings, you know, or your income. It's crazy if you don't have insurance. So of course, we're insuring, we're paying for this, we're protecting that, we're accumulating, we're preparing for retirement, we're doing all these things because we're afraid of the future. And it's not bad to be a planner or wise in terms of your financial administration, but it is bad if your life is being made smaller through fears. And so for me, what I want to address is not being wise about your future, it's what drives you. Is there a fear that's making you make all your decisions? And, and even to the point of how generous you are with the people around you. Like I used to live in financial fear and I knew that I had a poverty mindedness when other people gave my kids more generous gifts than I was giving them. As, as a, as a, it's not to say it's a comparison of economies. I mean, some people can give more easily than others, that's for sure. But the question was like, was I being generous or not? Because was I just afraid of the future or not? It was a, a wrestle I had to work through. God wants us to grow in faith and He wants to heal our fears. So for me, I have to read Psalm 23 and believe it's true. Psalm 23, Psalm of David, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Another translation says, I shall not be in lack. I shall not lack anything. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I love that. It's like God puts green, good, fresh grass in front of me as a sheep. And then he says, lie down and eat it. Like it's a command. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, meaning He takes me to places where there's peace and refreshment. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. There He's giving me Himself. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I mean, I had to... We can read that as a, as a, as a nice psalm, or you can read it and believe God will actually do these things in your life. And I want to live the latter. I want to have a conviction that God will actually bless me because He is that generous. 
See, I don't deserve it. I'll never deserve it. And I can't earn it. And it's not a payment for my doing good things for God. It's a revelation of just who He is. He just does this to us. We don't qualify. He just does it. But it's, it's more interesting. It's more interesting than this. Because it's a sin not to call upon the Lord. In other words, not to desire His provision, not to seek His provision is a sin. When you pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, you are not begging, oh, I'm going to be hungry, if, please, you know, it's not, it's not that, it's not please God, you know, don't forget me, it's, it's, a, it's more of a confident assurance, it's give us this day our daily bread, be our source. Because this is right and fitting in the design and economy of God. And I'll show that to you from His Word. God's provision is not optional. We sin by trying to provide for ourselves without asking God to be involved. And we sin by seeing others as the source of our provision or health. In 2 Chronicles 16 verse 7, there's this account of... Um, the king of Judah. Let's read 2 Chronicles 16 verse 7. At that time Hanani the seer came to Asa the king of Judah and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. You have done a foolish thing and from now on you will be at war. So what has Asa done? He's messed up because he thought that to win a war he could gather strength from the earth, from other strong kind of supporters. And he turned to man and God took offense. That's interesting. So you, you solve your problems yourself and God says, why you cut me out? Why you not call me? You know what's wrong with you? I was here. I'll explain why God feels this way in a moment. When you relied on the Lord, He delivered them into your hands. The eyes of the Lord ranged throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. You've done a foolish thing and now, from now on you'll be at war. Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison. At the same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. The events of Asa's reign from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was not was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his fathers. So here's one of those examples that you're supposed to look at and say, don't do it like that. Asa's the guy who got it wrong. You see, he failed both in big matters and in small matters. He failed at a national level when he led Judah and he turned to other nations for help instead of God. And he failed in his personal life when he turned only to physicians instead of turning to God. It is a sin not to lean upon God for provision. That's what this text teaches us. God wasn't pleased with him. 
So I'll now try and use an illustration to help you get why God feels this way. There was a, a time when my kids, two at least of them, have had this desire to go to ShopRite or SuperU and buy their own food. So they get pocket money and they tell me, you know, I'm going to gonna buy some uh, whatever, sausages or two-minute noodles or whatever it is that they can cook for themselves. And part of me like gets a bit uncomfortable about that and then later even more unhappy about it because when I give them pocket money, I want them to go and buy sweets. Like, I'm a good parent, but I actually want them to go and treat themselves so they can have autonomy, self-empowerment, make their own decision. But don't they dare decide to push me aside as their provider. They mustn't buy the food that they eat at mealtime with their pocket money. That's offensive to me because it's usurping my role to be the provider in their lives. Do you see that? As a father, I want to be the guy who buys the groceries or gives the money to my wife and she buys the groceries. I, I, want, to, I want to put food on the table for my family. And if my kids say to me, I can do it without you, I'm offended. When they're little, okay, when they're big, if they don't leave home and earn their own money, that's a different story. Then they must do it without me. But when they're little, they're under my protection and they're under my provision and it is my, my privilege, my honor to feed them. And it is God's privilege and His honor to feed us. And when we go somewhere else and say, I'm not going to ask you for my provision, it hurts God's heart. But He's saying, you're rejecting me as Father, not just, it's not just a financial transaction. It's His heart's joy and delight and right. It's His honor to provide for you. So when my kids said they're going to buy their own food, I wasn't happy. Because that's my responsibility and my privilege. So when you don't turn to God, He's not happy because He's saying this is my responsibility to love you, to provide for you, to give you good things. So it's a sin to put your hope in man. And even in Madagascar, I think there's a, a kind of a victory that's needed when we, when we look at the foreigner and we think they've got money, Madagascar needs money, and so we approach foreign investment as a solution. We're not approaching God. We should approach God. Then if the foreigner comes and the foreigner is generous, that's fine. But it's where you're actually going. Don't solve your problem. Turn to God and let Him work in your heart. So it's a sin to put your hope in man. Some people think the foreigner is the answer, they'll provide for me. This is wrong. Isaiah 31 verse 1 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. So woe to those who go to Egypt for their help, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. And in Ezekiel 29 verse 16 it says, Egypt will no longer be a source of confidence for the people of Israel, but will be a reminder of their sin in turning to her for help. That's brutal. So Egypt will be a reminder of their sin in turning to her for help. 
Then they will know that I am the sovereign Lord. In other words, they should have come to me, is what God's saying. Psalm 79 verse 6 says, Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. So you're supposed to call on the Lord. God not only wants to provide, but He is our provider. He is our Father. He is our husband. God is your husband. He's my husband. What that means is that same, I want to provide and make a place where you're safe. I want to give you security. I want to give you provision. I want to give you love. That is God's desire and His role. And it's offensive to God when we go somewhere else. Secondly, so first, that was my first point I want you to get. What did I call it? It's a sin not to call upon the Lord. Secondly, we fall short when we seek only just enough, or only what we want, or only the fulfillment of some contractual terms. The Abrahamic covenant is one of multiplied blessing. So, in, in the Abrahamic covenant, God said to Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a blessing through your seed. All nations will be blessed. Inherently, God's desire is that the blessing He gives to us overflows. That's part of His way. So He made nature even to reflect that. That the blessing is always meant to be bigger than what you need. I've never seen a, a healthy fruit tree that provides the right amount of fruit. It always makes too much. I mean, until you start farming commercially and, you know, canning the stuff. But if you just have a tree in your garden, it's always got more fruit than your family can eat. That's just the nature of how God made things. He wants things to be able to cascade over to someone else's life. So He wants your life to be a conduit of His grace. He wants to bless you with more than you need. So it's offensive to Him when you ask for Him to give only just enough. So... It's not, I'm not talking about greed dynamics. I'm not talking prosperity gospel or turning the blessing in on you. I'm saying the nature of God is that He wants things to flow outward away beyond to another generation, to another sphere. So we settle for um, second best when we approach things only contractually, meaning it's just enough or it's within this very finite bounding. Subsistence thinking is not kingdom thinking. So in Madagascar, when a guy plants a rice field and he says, now we've got rice for our family, he's sinning. Because on the one hand, he would be sinning if he did nothing, because he's not working. But if he does just enough to get just enough for his family, he's not thinking kingdom blessing. He's not thinking, I should be able to make far more than I need so that I can share with others. So... When we approach God contractually or we limit things to just enough or a kind of a what we need but not an overflow, it's a lack of faith. And I want to show you something about contractual thinking, which is what Israel had with God. They didn't think covenantally. They thought in terms of a legal transaction. They didn't get it. So here's one of Jesus' parables about the kingdom. Matthew chapter 20, he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. 
About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. There's the hook. So sneaky. God is so clever. He said, I'll pay you whatever's right. It's like the setup. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around and he asked them, Why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? They said, Because no one's hired us, they answered. And he said to them, You also go work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. So he starts with the eleventh hour workers. This is really going to freak the guys out. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. But they got the same pay as the guys who started at the beginning of the day. When those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. And he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? The socialism must hate this, the, the, the left-wing guys. They must struggle with this passage. Is it you, you set the terms that you would work for me for a day for a denarius, and you worked for a day for a denarius, and I'm paying you a denarius for your day's work. You have no reason to argue now, no? But you're offended because this other guy who stood around most of the day, and then he came in in the eleventh hour, he's also getting a denarius. But he never even negotiated with the employer. He didn't set any terms. He just received what the employer said would be right. And it's the same. Now, there's a whole um, salvation thing here, and you could go into a whole lot more um, proper exegesis, but I, I also think God's just showing us something of who He is. He says, take your pain, go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. He just wants to do good. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Like, you, you didn't get this, but God's always been generous. The one worker came early in the day and negotiated a deal with God. The other just experienced God's generosity. Okay? So it's, it's the one who came contractually at the beginning and negotiated on his terms is now upset because... He realizes that the other person actually got a better deal. So the last will be first and the first will be last. So as I said, you could, you could say many things about this passage to do it justice. But I want you to see that the, the Abrahamic covenant was not very detailed. The Abrahamic covenant, when God gave it to Abraham, he, he just said, I will bless you and you will be a blessing and I'll make a name for you and you must go to a land that I'll show you. It's very general and loose and unspecific compared to the Mosaic Covenant or the Covenant at Sinai, which has got the Ten Commandments amongst the other 17,000. I mean, I'm joking, but if you read the law, it's extremely detailed. It's very specific. It's very much a list of stuff. 
But the Abrahamic covenant, I would say it would be impossible for God to enumerate all the blessings he planned because it was the gospel announced in advance to Abraham. It's actually the gospel that's being given to Abraham. The true and lasting covenant that God wants to give us in his son. And it's, it's impossible to list all the blessings God has for us. But because Israel didn't see how good God was and they kept wandering off between Abraham and Moses. They were doing all kinds of things. And so then comes the Mosaic covenant which is more of a contract and it's got blessings and curses for upholding or breaking the terms in Deuteronomy 28 we won't read all of it but it lists all these things if you faithfully obey the Lord your God being careful to do all his commands the Lord will set you high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings will come upon you and then it lists uh, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be, shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. And, and it lists all the blessings for obedience and in Deuteronomy 28. And then counter to that you get all the curses for disobedience. And you can enter into a deal with God uh, through circumcision. And you can be part of this deal. And that's the old covenant or the law that was given to Moses. And Israel was given this to try and teach them to live on the right side where they would be blessed. Because we see in um, Deuteronomy, wait, let me get there. Wow, I've pasted too many verses. Um, Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 says, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. So God's desire is that Israel is blessed, but He's having to fight with them and force them to live, to like push them towards living on the right side of that covenant by laying out these are the blessings, these are the curses, obedience will win you these blessings, Disobedience will get you into trouble. But that's just the Mosaic Covenant. Later it gets prophesied, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. This is the something better to come, the new covenant. So we read in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 9 to 11. If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? So you've got two ways to approach God. You could come to him contractually, like the workers that came early in the day, or like Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. And you could say, I'll do this, and then you do that for me. I'll obey, and I expect to get blessing, um, the fruit of my womb, or, or the, you know, the soil, whatever. These blessings that are, I, I did right, and so God does right by me. I said I would work for a day, so you pay me my denarius. And all of that 
in itself is already something good. There's already life in that. Choose life, says God. So you choose life. But if you could see that to replace that, God comes with a, a, a better covenant in which there's no contractual obligation. It's not like if I do this, God will make my life better. It's God just pours out life, eternal life for us in His Son. And He just says it's limitless. There's no, there's no limit on the amount of goodness that He wants to do to us. But you come to God and you say, I want uh, one denarius for one day's work. What you're effectively doing is setting terms that put a ceiling on God's desire and heart to bless you lavishly, unmeasurably. So, when you set the terms, you lose. And this is one of the most difficult lessons to learn. For me, I, I feel like that's been one of the hardest things for me to realize, that if I negotiate with God, I will invariably plead for a worse deal than He wants to give me. That blows my mind, but that's what the Gospel is. It's a better deal than anything you could ever have negotiated. And so when I come to God and I say, but I did this for you, now I expect you to do that for me. He's like, no, 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 no. You're selling me short. That's contractual thinking. You're thinking like the law where you've done right and now I'll bless you. No, I just want to pour out blessing on your life. But we have to lose control and that's very difficult for anyone. This requires faith and trust. But we can see that God is trustworthy even through the Old Covenant, even to the first worker who arrived at the beginning of the day. God is faithful. He's trustworthy. But the parable actually reveals that the ones who feel hard done by are the ones who chose to put their trust in contract. There are contracts and there are covenants and God doesn't want to live at the level of a contract in your life. It's not because he has a problem keeping his promises, but precisely because he's so generous. He knows that when we enter into a contract, we set a ceiling on how good things can be, as good as we can imagine, and that's still not good enough. That's why he can say more than you could ask or imagine he wants to give to us. That's why no eye has seen or no ear has heard. It's more glorious to live putting all your hope, faith and trust and confident expectation in God. So finally, we know we believe this when we start to live as if God is generous towards us. We know we believe this stuff to be true when we start to live as if God is generous towards us. So this, I'll give you a, a testimony in my own life. There was a time where I would never have thought of extreme generosity or doing something stupidly generous. And then there was a time when God prompted me and said, you know what, you've, uh, you've got a good life and I'm going to keep your life good, but this guy over there, he needs something. So it was a car, it's not really very much, but I gave it away because I felt like why not? And I didn't have time to convince myself that, you know, it's logical or it's rational 
or it's wise or it's, it was none of that. It was like, why not? Because God is so good that I can't possibly lose. That, it was just that thought in my heart. It's like, okay, you can do it because God is so good you can't possibly lose. And actually, I did that. And the, the thing I'm talking about actually happened years and years and years ago. Since then, I've done it again. And I've at other times thought, should I, shouldn't I give this? And then I think, like, I can't really afford to, but you just do. And I've noticed my son, one of my sons, I'm not going to name the one, there's a, he does this with his money. Sometimes he's got like financial burdens ahead of him and responsibilities, and then he just gives some money to someone else. And I'm like, dude, that's reckless. It's irresponsible. How can you do that? And you know what? His life is just getting better and better. That's all. His life is just getting better and better because he's come to this conclusion that God will take care of me and I'm not taking care of myself. I can give it away and it's reckless in a way, but on the other hand, if you're feeling God leading you, then do it. Why not? You won't lose. Then you'll, you'll effectively find you living in that zone of generosity which is built only on one deep conviction that God is actually able to be your provider. And I think true generosity is like that. It should be, it should require some kind of faith. It should put you in a position where you're thinking, I, I can't really afford to do this. And then you just do it anyway. I think Aina has dozens of testimonies of that kind of generosity. He's a man who's taught me a lot about generosity. And, and I think the more I've tested God in those reckless moments, the more I've realized that I, I don't know how it works, but you can't, you can't wreck your life by being generous. Yeah. And it's just the enemy that says you will. You, you're going to suffer for this. You're, gonna, you're making the wrong choice. You, you're taking too much of a risk. It's, it's going to cost you and you're going to be without. And you're going to be, when you need, you won't have. And in the future, you, will, you won't be able to pay your debts. And you better hold on to that thing. That's how the devil reasons with us. And then, actually, you just do it and life goes fine anyway. So, I don't know if that makes sense to you. But, at the end of the day, we have to have this. When we're free from worry, when we pray the Lord's Prayer with faith, give us this day our daily bread. When we live for others, not for self-preservation. When we give and share and we do all of it freely then we're starting to understand generosity. And we can do that when we understand God's heart. That's, I need to finish. So I'm going to finish with this text. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God.
For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. When we as a church start to live generously with people, the result is more praise to God. When you as a believer live generously towards others, the result is thanksgiving to God. And I love that. When real generosity is flowing, no one's feeling guilty or obligated. You're saying, oh, thank God for this. Not, oh, I'm devoted to you now because you were kind to me. You know, it's not, it's not toxic dependencies. It's giving freely, receiving freely, and thanksgiving goes to God. So the glorious fruit of generosity is that it's done with a freedom and a no anxiety and, a, and no compulsion. There's no manipulation. There's no pressure. There's no sense of like obligation or connection or having to repay. It's just like, yeah, let go, move on. That's it. That's how God works. Just pour it out. It's yours. Enjoy it. That's how He gives to us. And that's the nature of His heart. He always wants to bless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to have a clear understanding of how you think and feel when it comes to giving and blessing and pouring out. And God, help us to trust that as you are our provider, we can lean into you knowing we don't have to carry that responsibility or the fear that comes with it but we can completely relax into the arms of a loving father who cares for our every need and then when we live our lives help us god to be conduits of your grace the grace that you've shown to us the grace that that is given in the gospel where you didn't even withhold your son but he came and gave his life for us let's live lord god in your Help us, Lord, to live in your grace. Help us to live in a knowledge of your generosity, your lavish, abundant, overflowing goodness, Lord. Amen. Would you stand? The band can come up and let's worship God together.